everyone. Hello, hello, hello. I am Maven, who you may have seen around. I am the sidekick of Nyarion, the lore master, and I welcome everyone on Crick Hollow and on Twitch 2, Class 2 of Exploring Lord of the Rings. Huzzah! Uh, and I also want to introduce our uh, in introducer tonight, <laughs> Luventhariel from The Second Breakfast, who is the kinship who is sponsoring us tonight. So Luventhariel is going to be doing so, uh, be introducing and we will have a voice a disembodied voice reading for her welcome everyone Second breakfast of Crick Hollow, and more importantly, Dr. Coriolson of Signum University would like to welcome you all. Before Professor Olson starts the lecture, I would like to tell you about a few of the activities that Second Breakfast hosts for the server. People from all around the game are welcome to join us for the for these music, RP, and storytelling friendly events. We hold elevenses every Sunday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 11 p.m. in the Bird and Baby, Bread and Jam on Fridays at the Pony at 9 p.m., Midweek Tunes and Ales at 11 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. at various locations, and Tolo Imladris... Oops, lost it. Hang on a second. Where, where do we go? Uh, and Tolo Imladris at the Last Homely House, Saturdays at midnight. All of these are server time. We have more details... About our, about our, I'm losing my chat here. Here we go. We have more details about our band concerts, roving threat nights, and special events on our website, secondbreakfast.guildlaunch.com. And with that said, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest of honor, Dr. Coriolson, in the Tolkien Professor. Okay. All right. Sorry. Do a little, uh, little ventriloquism there uh, for our guest who was, uh, uh, who did not have her mic. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I should know how to spell bow, and then I would be able to actually bow to people. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. We are very excited to be holding our second class here this week in the new Lore Hall. So this is the, the new, uh, the new uh, Scholars Hall uh, that was established in Bree. Um, we uh, asked very pretty please if we could have a, a, a space in Bree to be a special Lore Hall uh, uh, for, for this class. And, and uh, uh, the Lotro folks... Uh, all the, the good people at Standing Stone very, very generously uh, and wonderfully put together this beautiful spot for us. So we were literally on the street last week for our opening session, and this week uh, we get this uh, we get this lovely venue. Um, so yeah, so welcome. We're on the Crick Hollow server, and again, thanks to the Second Breakfast Kinship, uh, who is hosting us here on on, on the Crick Hollow server this week. Um, I did want to mention if you uh, would like uh, this event and our field trip to take place in your uh, on, on your server and with your kinship, if you're in Lotro, uh, please do feel free to get in touch with us. Um, 
uh, you can uh, you can do that in various places. One place, of course, that would be easy to do it would be on our discussion boards, uh, which is at lotro.signumuniversity.org. Sorry, lotro.mythgard.org. Um, uh, and that's that's also the place where you go if you are watching or listening to this uh, to these sessions asynchronously. That's the place where you can go and post questions and still get involved in the discussion uh, after the fact. There were uh, uh, several uh, really good posts and interesting questions that were uh, put there this past week, which I wanted to actually begin with uh, 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 talking about tonight before we get back to the first paragraph of the book, um, because we are moving fast through the Lord of the Rings as fast as I possibly can, which means we're still on paragraph one in the second week. So um, just a quick reminder of how things work, because I know this is still new and we have some new people here with us today. The main place for you to watch this, the main place, the easiest thing for you to do, and you don't have to be in the game and it has to, doesn't, have to, doesn't have to have anything to do with that. Um, you can just go to twitch.tv slash and just sit back and watch and listen and you'll be able to uh, to, to, to be a part of that and to, to, to follow along. I'm going to show at times, I'm going to be showing slides like this. So you can see uh, some passages of text that I'm going to want to talk about, uh, but uh, but otherwise um, y- you'll you'll as I say you'll you'll be able to follow along if you want to participate. That is, if you want to uh, ask questions or make comments uh, to me that I'm going to be monitoring during uh, the session, uh, then you need to go to uh, to Discord and uh, uh, Maven. If you could post the Discord link, uh, the correct Discord link in the um, uh, in the Twitch chat. Uh, that would be really handy, so we can make sure that everybody knows where to go uh, on Discord. Um, so if you go uh, in Discord, the text channel is Lore Hall Questions for Corey. Um, Bruinier, you are in the right place for posting questions to me, so that's good. Um, the, uh, the, the, the way to get audio is either through Twitch, or if you're in Discord, you can go to the, uh, to the Lore Hall audio channel. But if you're in both, you want to make sure you mute one because you're going to be hearing me in off kilter stereo, and it's going to be a little bit uh, a little bit confusing. So, so there's uh, there's there's where you want to go. Um, and like I said, the place to go for for asynchronous discussion after the fact is uh, is to lotro mythgard.org. So, uh, so there we are. Um, the one thing I would ask if you are in. Uh, Discord in the in in the text chat there. Please do make sure that you restrict you you keep that chat just for stuff that you want me to see. I don't I, I can't. Um, there's a lot of people, and I have a hard time sifting through everybody. As it is, I'm not going to be able to get to to address everybody's question or comment. Um, but it's going to be hard for me even to follow if people are chatting uh, with each other. If you do want it, we encourage you to chat amongst yourselves. You can do that either in the Twitch chat uh, on on the the main Twitch channel, or you can do it in the general text chat uh, in Discord. Either place would be fine. So anyway, so uh, now, the, oh, the other thing, of course, is if you're here in the room, I see everyone is being very well behaved right now. I would ask that you please refrain from doing AOE effects and stuff like that, as it's distracting and likely to give me a seizure during the class, and nobody wants that. So, okay, let's get started then. Um, two quick announcements before, uh, uh, before I, uh, I, I start, because there are two things that are coming up in the next two days that I want to make sure that you know about. One is I'm doing, sort of, at the same time that I'm doing this uh, class, I'm also doing another open public class on the Return of the Shadow, uh, which is, of course, as you probably know, the first volume of the history of the Lord of the Rings, um, edited by Christopher Tolkien. It uh, goes through the manuscript history, uh, you know, watching the Lord of the Rings unfold as Tolkien 
began writing it and began working on it. Um, we started that now. We're in class four. Uh, this week, so we're a little bit in, but we're 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 going to meet Tom Bombadil uh, for the first time and see how the whole Old Forest and Tom Bombadil and Barrow White episodes uh, kind of unfolded as um, as Tolkien was going through the uh, the drafts of the Fellowship of the Ring. So it, that's been a really fascinating study. I encourage you uh, to join us there. If you go to it's uh, the, the it's uh, the Mythgard Academy. Um, so you can find if you go to mythgard.org and go to the Academy tab. There's a there's a web page for the Return of the Shadow class uh, right there at the top of that menu. The other thing is a very very special event that I, I strongly encourage you to attend because it's a wonderful opportunity. And that is Tom Shippey is giving a free seminar um, this uh, this week starting on Thursday. Um, so Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Tom Shippey is going to be talking about uh, Tolkien's Beowulf. Um, so if you if you saw the Beowulf edition that was recently published by Christopher Tolkien, which gives Tolkien's notes and Tolkien's prose translation of Beowulf, and I know a lot of people, you know, it's the reaction I got from a lot of people. I mean, of course, like complete. You know, diehard Tolkien geeks were really excited about it, and also Anglo-Saxonists were very interested in it. Um, but people who, you know, sort of more casual, um, uh, more casual uh, uh, Tolkien fans, I think to that book had kind of, you know, where a lot of people were sort of like, uh, you know, what is this? Like, what exactly, you know, do we get from this? It's kind of not exactly what um, um, what people expected. Um, so. Um, so anyway, I, 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 this seminar is going to be Tom Shippey, who is just, you know, one of the greatest living experts on both Tolkien and on Beowulf, uh, and is going to sort of walk us through the significance of what we learn from that book and how it reveals um, what we can, um, what Tolkien really thought about Beowulf and sort of his unfolding ideas uh, about Beowulf, which was so central to his own uh, creative uh, project. So I just, I hope that you will uh, take the opportunity. Tom Shippey, if you don't know Tom Shippey, he is uh, just one of the great, you know, he's like the godfather of Tolkien studies. Uh, he is, he is absolutely wonderful. Um, if you know, if you know the Peter Jackson films and you've watched the, D, the you know, the DVD extras and commentaries and stuff, he's the bald guy uh, in the, on the DVDs. So uh, he's uh, he's 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 great. He's going to be um, um, uh, going to be. So that's going to be Thursday for the next three Thursdays uh, starting this week. All right. So let's get back to the text here. So um, last week we were talking about uh, we we're talking about Hobbit culture in general. What do we learn about the Shire? Because there was so much uh, uh, there was so much that we didn't learn um, about uh, that. Sorry, I just. I forgot something here. Um, there's, 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 there's so much that we didn't learn about hobbits in the, in in the Hobbit, right? I, you know, as I said last time, Hobbit culture and sort of the Shire culture, though it wasn't even named that, um, was very much kind of just a background frame for Bilbo's character, and we didn't really get to know the people of the Shire very much. Well. Now, of course, in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring, we get to meet them a lot more, and we, uh, you know, we 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 spent a good deal of time uh, talking about that last week. There's one thing I want to briefly revisit from that discussion, that I want to answer a couple questions, then we'll move forward with some other stuff uh, here tonight. The first thing I wanted to revisit 
was the, the issue of presence. We spent some time talking about presence and especially about the presence that Bilbo leaves behind with the special labels attached uh, for people. I, uh, I, I did a, a Facebook post this week talking about kind of some of my reflections on that, one of which is that I think that I, I, I've generally been uh, too much of a weenie uh, in my interpretation of that. I, uh, I, I, was, I was admitting that as I was thinking it through after our discussion last Wednesday, that um, there's, uh, it, it's it's I've I've always been tempted basically to look at that um, that moment as it like basically worrying that Dora Baggins was gonna be crushed. You know, this, she's the 99 year old Hobbit um, who had been writing reams of good advice for many years, uh, and uh, and Bilbo leaves her the waste paper basket, which seems so rude. Um, and so I I, you know, I I had never wanted to think that he was being mean, that he really meant, like, here's where you can stick your letters, right? I didn't want that to be the subtext. And the reason I didn't want that was because I was imagining Dora being crushed, you know, and, like, betrayed after all these years of of friendship. And I don't really think that that's the case. The more I've thought about it, the more I realize it doesn't really fit at all with the tone of things. My suspicion is that Dora Baggins probably laughed out loud when she saw uh, the, the tag from Bilbo and thought it was a really great joke. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so that's, that's, that's thing number one that I wanted to, that I wanted to, 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 to emphasize. The other thing though, I, I felt that there was one thing I wanted to make sure we didn't lose sight of. You know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about kind of Bilbo's, uh, jokes at other people's expense, but, but there's, there's, there, there's more. I wanted to make sure we didn't miss this part of it. Um, every one of the various parting gifts had labels written out personally by Bilbo, and several several had some point or some joke. But of course, most of the things were given where they would be wanted and welcome. The poorer hobbits, especially those of Bagshot Row, did very well. Old Gaffer Gamgee got two sacks of potatoes, a new spade, a woolen waistcoat, and a bottle of ointment for creaking joints. Old Rory Brandybuck, in return for much hospitality, got a dozen bottles of old Winyards, a strong red wine from the South Farthing, and now quite mature, as it had been laid down by Bilbo's father. Rory quite forgave Bilbo, and voted him a capital fellow after the first bottle. Which, of course, makes you wonder how many bottles, in fact, he drank at that sitting. But, um... Uh, one of the things I really like about that, notice how we're given examples of both the kind of gifts that he gave uh, to his immediate neighbors, right, to his poor neighbors, and the kind of gift that he gave to his rich relations, right? Rory Brandybuck is uh, is is a very prominent member, right, uh, of the Brandybuck clan. So uh, he gets uh, he gets a dozen bottles of very valuable wine, uh, whereas Gaffer Gamgee gets two sacks of potatoes, a new spade, a woolen waistcoat, and a bottle of ointment for creaking joints. And what I would point out there is, first of all, the 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 number of gifts. Right? He gets a he doesn't just get like a token thing. He gets he gets a bunch of things. Right? And you know, it might seem like, well, gosh, that's you know maybe you should have given him a bunch of you know like a, a small pile of money instead or something, but. What really strikes me here is how thoughtful these gifts are, right? I mean, every single one of those things is something that Gaffer Gamgee would really, really value, right? He, 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 
two sacks of potatoes, right? He loves potatoes, right? We know this. Um, a new spade for digging in his garden, right? That's probably something the gaffer really needs and certainly something he's going to use and something he's going to value. A woolen waistcoat, right? Uh, you know, uh, gaffer Gamgee's kind of getting up in years, right? But he's still out working in his garden at all time and probably in all weathers. So, you know, a nice woolen waistcoat to make sure he stays warm when he's out in his garden. And of course, a bottle of ointment for creaking joints. That is, he knows, Bilbo knows about like the ailments of his neighbor and, and you know, what his neighbor could... Uh, um, could 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 use to uh, to, uh, to you know for, to, to help. So I think that that's um, uh, yeah, I, to to me that's 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 really kind of kind of cute. So I mean th- this 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 sort of thing. This you know the actual thoughtfulness and generosity of many of those gifts. It's something that we have to keep in mind that he didn't just give gags and insults. He did do that, but it it wasn't just that. Um, so yeah, and, and uh, as uh, 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 Faithful says here, those gifts are Bilbo's farewell, farewell gifts to them. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and I think that that's uh, that's a really important way to to remember uh, these things. Um, yeah, good. Um, now, Bruinier is asking, how old is the gaffer? He mentioned he was a lad when Bilbo went on his adventure, yet he seems so much older. Yeah, you're right, uh, Bruinier. I mean, it's obvious he's he's younger than than Bilbo, right? Clearly. I mean, Bilbo was 50 when, um, when he, he was 51, technically, right? When he came back from his journey. And that's the point at which, um, uh, you know, the gaffer says when he was just a lad and he had not long come prentice to old Holman, right? So he had just started his apprenticeship. So I don't know, maybe he's in his, maybe in his tweens, right? Um, at that point would be a guess. Uh, which means he's fully 20 years younger, so he's probably in his 90s, the gaffer, right? But a couple things that I would point out. First of all, one thing, of course, that this is meant to emphasize, I think, uh, is how well-preserved Bilbo is. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, It is not normal for a hobbit of 11d1 to to look almost exactly like he did, to be unchanged from his 51st birthday, right? Um, Bilbo should be... uh, very old and stiff in the joints himself right now. And the fact that he's not, that's the fact that he's not is what's weird. The fact that the gaffer probably in his nineties is, is not weird. But, but anyway, the second thing, um, that I would say about that is that of course the gaffer has, uh, I lived a rougher life, right? I mean, if, uh, if Bilbo had had to go out and work in his living in the garden every day, uh, and did not have a magic ring, which gave him apparently perpetual youth. Um, uh, th- probably he would uh, be a lot stiffer in the joints himself too, right? Uh, uh, so th- those are the two things that I would say about the sort of the gaffer's apparent, uh, apparent, uh, um, uh, apparently greater age, though 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 he's not actually older. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Okay. Uh, Gilgalir says, do you think the large number of gifts might be a holdover from the initial drafts when he needed to trick the ring into giving it away? Um, well, it's interesting, Gilgalir, because actually these gifts, the gifts to Gaffer Gamgee, uh, for instance, are not there. And of course, the Gamgees are, are, are a later addition. Neither Sam nor the Gaffer uh, are in the first draft. And uh, and so that, that whole thing is actually an addition. The 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 earliest drafts of the of this chapter focus almost exclusively on the 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 
jokes and insults, basically. Um, so we don't get um, we don't get nearly so much of that um, going through. Um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to um, I wanted to point out, um, thinking about gifts, and this I wanted to mention. This is just a comment from uh, Lincoln Alpern on the discussion board uh, on the forums. He made a really interesting comment about contrasting hobbits with dragons. Basically, the fact that not only the hobbits love to give gifts, but also uh, the, uh, the the point that he made that I particularly liked was drawing attention to to how the narrator tells us that they never get tired of them. Right? They never get tired of presents. Um, and although that might on the one hand, seem like a no-brainer, like, of course, like, who gets tired of getting presents, right? But uh, Lincoln had a good answer to that question. Dragons, right? That is, on the one hand, we get this image of an almost, or at least a sort of a potentially dragonish kind of existence, right? Hobbit holes have this tendency to get cluttered up because they're always getting gifts, so they're they're sort of accumulating all this stuff. And one of the symptoms, of course, of of of, of dragon sickness, of that kind of acquisitiveness, of the that desire to get uh, and to keep, is to to cease to value. You know, Smaug, you you may remember in the Hobbit. Uh, has a shrewd notion of the market value of any of the things in his hoard, um, but he doesn't really look at them or care about them, right? He he ceases to pay any real attention to them, um, and yet we're so the, the 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 spirit of hobbits and their relationship to gifts uh, seems to be in very marked contrast with that kind of dragonishness. And I thought that was a great observation um, by uh, um, by Lincoln there. Thanks, um, and. Lincoln is actually following up live here with another really good question. Um, what is the source of Bilbo's income? Lincoln, I would say if there is one element of world building to which Tolkien paid less attention than any other, it would be economics. Um, if you want to nitpick economics, you'll be able to poke bigger holes in Tolkien's secondary world than I think you would in any other way. Um, Economics is just a subject in which Tolkien was very, very little interested. He talks about money and family money, um, but he talks always talks about family money. Um, there's family land as well, but it's not really... The Shire does not really seem to be a, um, a land-based economy in the same way as, like, 18th or 19th century England, especially 18th or 17th or 16th century England. Um... Think about, for instance, how, um, uh, like, Jane Austen characters, right, are always, like, they've got their incomes, and they're, you know, gentlemen who have their incomes of, you know, a certain number of thousand pounds a year, um, but it's because of their estates and the rents off their estates, and they spend, if they're good landowners, somebody like Mr. Darcy, he will spend a, a lot of time with his steward and, and, and working with the people who are on his estates and, 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 and you know, helping them, and, and you know, so... He, it's it's a job, right? I mean, and it's clear like where the money comes from um, with those people. Um, uh, Tolkien never really addresses that at all. I mean, he 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 has family money, or at least he has money from his mom, right? There's again, there's that reference in the Hobbit to the fact that uh, Bilbo's father, Bungo, built Bag End mostly with with uh, with. Um, uh, I almost said Esmeralda, but that's of course Pippin's mom, not Bilbo's mom. Um, with uh, uh, Belladonna, my goodness, why was I blanking on Bilbo's mom's name? Belladonna uh, took money, right? Um, so uh, you know, and that's again, we don't really know. 
um, much about the mechanics of that. Like, so if you have family money, is there like usury? I mean, like, do you, can you invest it in a banking and live off the interest? Right? Is that does is that a thing that happens? They don't seem to be in trade. They doesn't seem to have estates and people paying him rent. Uh, you know, we we don't really um, uh, we don't really know any of that stuff. Just talking just doesn't answer that question. And frankly, his stories almost never really show much interest at all in those kinds of questions. Um, so, yeah. Okay, now, this, uh, okay, one or two other questions. I, I, I don't want to degenerate too much into open Q&A here because I do want to make sure that we get through this stuff from the text that I want to talk about today. Uh, but but, I, but I, will, uh, I will address this. So the question is new world stuff. So the problem is potatoes, right? Potatoes, potatoes are from the new world. Right, they they were famously brought back from the New World. Um, wasn't it by Sir Walter Raleigh first brought the potato back from the New World? Uh, it was. Am I not remembering a famous story about Sir Walter Raleigh presenting potatoes to Queen Elizabeth the first, um, as I recall? Uh, so um, anyway, so they're a New World item. Um, why are there potatoes in the Shire? Right. Um, and if there are potatoes, why now, uh, Dime is pointing out that Tolkien didn't like the word tobacco. That's why the word tobacco doesn't appear in the Lord of the Rings. He used the word tobacco in the Hobbit, but he doesn't use the word tobacco. Uh, and the reason is because it's a newfangled word. Um, it's not an Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, so he uses, he sort of invents the word pipeweed instead, uh, just sort of making up a word, which is composed of two good, solid, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon words instead of the 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 you know that Johnny Come Lately word tobacco, um, so, but Dima, I would say that's a different thing. It's the tobacco thing is not really a new world versus old world issue, not really like a an Americas versus Europe issue. It's it's a linguistic issue. Tolkien, um, you know, Tolkien preferred words that had been in the language since before the Norman Conquest. Um, he did not much approve of where, well, he preferred words, I should say. I won't say we didn't approve, but he, he preferred words uh, that had been in the language since at least 1500. Um, that's always his preference. So, um, uh, and he was especially, he worked hard to be especially consistent at that in The Lord of the Rings. It wasn't something that was really a priority for him as he was writing The Hobbit, which is why tobacco and phrases like, uh, like tobacco jar. Um, is still in there. And yes, definitely, I know tobacco is a new world plant as well. Um, uh, so, why is it, why is it there? I, you know, I... This actually connects to something I was just going to get to, which is uh, one of three great questions uh, that I got in another post um, on the discussion board. And that's basically the connection to 19th century English people. The question about the identity between the Shire and Victorian rural England. Um, Tolkien talked about that in his letters. You can see several places where he says, like, the Shire is basically rural England uh, at about the time of the Diamond Jubilee. Uh, Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. So late 19th century rural England. In other words, uh, the time of Tolkien's own childhood is what that means. Um, And... I think, well, I know it's 
very possible to take that too far, right? A lot of times people want to kind of take that and say, oh, so like they kind of want to draw an equal sign, right? Um, and Tolkien really kind of resisted that. And if you read all of Tolkien's letters, you can you can see this sort of happen. There are times when Tolkien makes statements like that. The Shire is basically rural England at, at, at about the time of the Diamond Jubilee. And he also says rash things like, I am essentially a hobbit, right? Um, but then there are other letters in which he says very firmly, clearly responding to people who have kind of taken that too far. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not a hobbit. In order to be a hobbit, you've got to be like three feet tall. I am more than three feet tall. I am not a hobbit, right? Um, that is like people began to kind of take that literally, like it's like actually autobiographically based on himself or something. And he's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not what I was saying. Similarly, it isn't true that people in the Shire are the same that he's like doing a portrait of you know uh, 19th you know late 19th century uh, rural English people however that is clearly the kind of mode that he was operating in people talk about the you know sort of the technology level and we talked about this a bit last week too um, of the of Middle Earth being basically like late medieval and that's pretty much true but I think this is one of the reasons why we see some of those anachronisms creeping in things like umbrellas that we as we talked about last time because um, they did have umbrellas in rural 19th century England at about the time of the diamond jubilee that's what he um, that's what he kind of pictured um, and of, so there were things that had been naturalized at that point you know within that kind of social context within England like potatoes and like tobacco for so long that you know, Tolkien clearly doesn't rule them out as alien and want to do without them. That is, he's not actually creating this, like, alternate history, right? He's not being totally... He's not being consistent with his overall frame. He doesn't even really try to be consistent with his overall frame. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, The fictional frame, right, of The Lord of the Rings is that this takes place in our world. It's not a fantasy. It's not a separate world, right? It's not, this is, this is not, you know, The Lord of the Rings is not something that happens in, you know, in, in, in a galaxy far, far away and, you know, you know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Long, long ago, yes. Far, far away, no, right? It's, it's our world and it's basically, you know, Europe, but it's, um, and it, but it's a long time ago. He's like vague. He waves his hands at it and says like vaguely prehistory. That is to say, you know, don't go looking for this in the record books, right? Um, but of course, it also doesn't mean like Paleolithic or anything like that. And again, he doesn't even. It's it's not his goal to make it fit his to integrate it historically with our known history. He never makes, as far as I can think of, he can't. Um, he can't. He doesn't make the first gesture towards actually integrating those things, um, the, towards integrating our recorded history with the history of Middle Earth. Not anyway in his later work, not in The Lord of the Rings. Um, he does do that to some extent in the early stuff, like in the Book of Lost Tales, but he doesn't do that um, in the later story. So, um, anyway, uh, for this reason, I, I'm not, I, I think. I think that people who want there to be the kind of consist the kind of historical consistency that says, well, if this is you know sort of prehistoric, then obviously and in Europe, then there can't be any potatoes or tobacco. Um, I think they're kind of doing something that Tolkien himself isn't really isn't really doing, 
though. I mean, he's just... That, that does not really seem to be what this story is interested in. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and not the element of his frame and his frame stories uh, that, he's, um, um, that he's really focused on. Um, anyway, okay. So, now, two more notes, uh, and, then we'll, and then we'll get going on, uh, on some other stuff. Um, another, another great question... Uh, by that, by the the same poster on the discussion board, was about my sort of downplaying of class distinctions in the story. Again, that was another thing that came up last time, um, and I, I I said several times something like, um, "Don't don't put too much stress on the class distinction." Let me kind of back up from that for a second and explain a little bit more what I mean by that. First of all, I don't mean the class distinctions are not there or not important. They totally are there, and they are important. Um, I'm not trying to downplay the presence of significant class distinctions within the society, nor am I trying to say that it, that it doesn't matter. It, it obviously matters a very great deal. My caution is against misinterpreting the significance of that. And this, again, is per- I, I, I'm, I'm speaking here especially to Americans, reading the story. Um, Americans have, culturally speaking, we have this strong built-in distaste for class distinctions, for like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, inherited class distinctions. And the idea of one person treating another person as if one of those people was just intrinsically superior in some sense, to the other is like anathema to the American perspective. I know, I, 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 I get this. I totally get this. Um, therefore, my point is, I have seen this lead a lot of American readers to misinterpret, and sometimes really importantly, I think, misinterpret some characters in the Lord of the Rings and some elements of the Lord of the Rings story. Um, in America, if one person treats another person as if they assume that that person is their inferior, like, we have names for that kind of person, right? And we have no patience with that kind of action. That is, we, we, we are automatically, um, we are, we are, we are automatically, you know, judging that, um, that person, you know, and, uh, and, and their whole attitude and way of looking at things and way of treating people. Um, that is, we assume they're being, they're being arrogant, they're being condescending, and that word in, 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 in American culture is always an insult, condescending. It was a compliment uh, in, in English society, especially in older English society, but it's always an insult in America. Um, they're being patronizing, um, they're, you know, arrogant and, and full of themselves. Um, this is an assumed framework, and we have to make sure that we're understanding the story on its own terms and within its own framework. You know, if you want to make an argument that class distinctions of the kind that are made, like the kind of class distinctions we see between Frodo and Sam, for instance, if we want to say that that kind of class distinction is a bad thing in general, you can make that argument. That's fine. Like, you can make the sociological argument. But in a sense, that's totally irrelevant to this story itself, right? That's, that's an argument that you make separately, right? It doesn't help you to understand Frodo and Sam, okay? Um, If we see Frodo sort of taking for granted that Sam is his inferior, 
and therefore we like go all American on that, and we were like, oh, that Frodo is a jerk, right, for treating Sam like how how could he treat Sam like that? That's outrageous. That's horrible. Um, we are projecting something onto the text which just isn't there, which would be totally incomprehensible to both Frodo and Sam. Um, so we have to. I mean, I, I, I've I've seen Americans, you know, in this way, mist- like when Frodo is being kind to. Uh, to, 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 to Sam, even more especially to Gollum, right? When he takes Smeagol basically as his servant and treats him very, treats him with kindness, but, but it's very clearly the kindness of a good and generous master towards a servant, right? That is the, that is the, the subspecies of kindness that Frodo shows towards Gollum. And if we look at that and we see Frodo as like, oh, well, sure, he's being kind to Gollum, but he's treating him like a slave, right? If, if, if we have that reaction, my argument is we are completely missing the point, completely missing the point. Um, and we're totally misunderstanding the significance of what Frodo is doing. Sam gets what Frodo is doing, right? He doesn't like it, not because, of course, he is himself insulted, but because he doesn't think that Gollum deserves to be treated that well, right? He, he doesn't buy uh, what, uh, what Gollum is, uh, is, 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 is trying to sell there. Um, so it, the fact that Sam is Frodo's servant and therefore his social inferior is an enormously important part of their relationship. And we have to just accept that it is, because if we don't, we're going to misunderstand their relationship and we're going to miss a lot of the really, um, we're going to miss a lot of the really beautiful elements of that relationship between between Frodo and uh, between Frodo and Sam, for instance, it's the entire premise of their relationship. Um, so again, so so as it, so, do you see? I, I hope you see what I mean when I say I'm not trying to just downplay the importance of those distinctions, but I just want to kind of be cautious um, in uh, th- that we don't um, automatically project uh, certain kind of reactions to those. If you see, uh, if you see what I mean by that. Okay. Um, last thing, and this uh, leads me to another passage of text. So um, the final uh, post from the discussion board I wanted to address was someone who was asking about the scandal mongering stuff. Is there? Um, is there? Is there? Ju- like, are we supposed to? Are we supposed to see that as a bad thing? Is there judgment there? Right? Is gossip wrong? Do people look down on it? Yes or no, right? On the one hand, there, there are two examples that I would point to. Uh, one is remember the conversation with the gaffer, right? The, the, the gaffer, Sandyman, and Old Noakes, I think, illustrate this more clearly than, than anywhere else. It is very clear that they sit around gossiping all the time, and nobody has a problem with this, right? Even, again, Old Noakes uh, waiting to pitch in with his fat joke, right? And I heard that it was his... They went, they went boating after dinner in the moonlight, and it was his way to sunk the boat, right? He's just, you know... And that's great. That's all. That's all. That's all good fun, right? Um, but then, of course, Sandyman crosses the line, and when Sandyman starts accusing them of murder, right? Uh, that's not okay. They are absolutely not okay with that kind of scandal mongering, right? That because that's a real scandal, and that's obviously. Uh, certain something that the, that the gaffer doesn't find acceptable. There's another, of course, obvious example of a time when scandal mongering is not considered okay uh, in the story, of course, and that's Frodo to the Sackville Bagginses. 
Every one of the various parting gifts had... Oh, sorry. I already read that one. Next one, I meant... All right. I find I have become rather unpopular. They say I am a nuisance and a disturber of the peace. This is Gandalf, of course. Uh, Some people are actually accusing me of spiriting Bilbo away, or worse. If you want to know, there is supposed to be a plot between you and me to get hold of his wealth. Some people, exclaimed Frodo. You mean Otho and Lobelia? How abominable. I would give them Bag End and everything else if I could get Bilbo back and go go off tramping in the country with him. I love the Shire, but I begin to wish somehow that I had gone too. I wonder if I shall ever see him again. Um, so, okay, we're, um, uh, we're gonna come to Frodo's desire, Bilbo's desire to leave, and Frodo's desire to leave. We'll come back to that, uh, next week, but I just wanted to point out the, um, uh, the, the, his, his judgment of the Sackville Bagginses there, right? Um, he considers Otho and Lobelia, he immediately assumes Otho and Lobelia are going up and down um, spreading this idea of a supposed plot between Frodo and Gandalf uh, to get hold of Bilbo's wealth, right? Um, he, he Notice how, when he hears that rumor, he immediately concludes, A, this was a malicious rumor, right? Started on purpose, and that's not a good thing. B, he, of course, suspects the Sackville Bagginses of having started it, and he calls it abominable, right? So that's, um, that's important, right? I mean, I think that that's, that's, this, this clearly shows that it's not just generally accepted as being okay to always say these things. So talking, talking about your neighbors, you know, talking, you know, it, telling stories about people is clearly okay. Malicious uh, spreading of rumor, uh, you know, whether it's about, you know, and and notice this is another, uh, this is really another attempted murder rumor, right? It's very like Sandyman's rumor in a sense. Um, You know, this is conspiracy to murder, probably murder. I mean, the the implication would seem to be that uh, Gandalf and Frodo have probably got rid of Bilbo somewhere and, um, you know, he's lying buried under a hedge or something. Um, But uh, anyway... Yeah, so um, uh, we can, I think, see some pretty clear indications here. All right, I want to go back today, as I said before, I want to go back to to paragraph one. What I want to look at today is Bilbo's depiction, uh, sort of the trajectory of Bilbo, Bilbo's story. As I said, my 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 title for the today's session is the uh, the 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 continuing adventures of Bilbo Baggins. Um, first thing to Remember, right? Thing, the, a frame to keep in mind. The Lord of the Rings, of course, has become, you know, the greatest and most famous of Tolkien's works. And there are a lot of people, you know, most people, I think, who have read The Lord of the Rings have read The Hobbit as well. Um, but in the minds of most Tolkien fans, you've got like The Lord of the Rings up here and like The Hobbit tends to be a, a bit of a footnote, right? Kind of a subsidiary work uh, to The Lord of the Rings. Um, the Lord of the Rings is sort of the big major central thing. I wanted to invite us to recall that, of course, as Tolkien is writing chapter one of The Fellowship of the Ring, that is, of course, very much not the case. The Hobbit has been published. It was very popular. The publisher was, you know, requesting a sequel. And uh, and we get... Um, him trying to come up with a sequel to The Hobbit, right? So in his mind, there's uh, there's there, there's a very direct link, and this chapter is derivative of The Hobbit, 
right? He's sort of coming in with that. So knowing that, you know, with The Hobbit in mind, Tolkien introducing this book to the world as essentially the sequel to The Hobbit, right? So hopefully Hobbit fans, they've been waiting a long time, right? They waited 17 years, uh, and then finally the new book came uh, came out, but they've got The Hobbit. You know, hopefully good readers reread The Hobbit before, uh, before the new Lord of the Rings, you know, before The Fellowship of the Ring came out, so they were all ready. So Coming at it from that point of view, if all you know is the Hobbit, the Hob the Hobbit is Tolkien's op- you know opus, and this is the sequel. What do we see at the beginning, right? So let's look at the start of the story. When Mister Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his eleventy-first birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for sixty years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At ninety, he was much the same as fifty— At ninety-nine, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth, as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. Okay. What do you notice here? Yes, Erohebe, isn't it really interesting that Bilbo's reputation has totally flipped from the beginning of The Hobbit? Remember, in, in, in chapter one of The Hobbit, we're told that Bilbo was very respectable, right? He was considered very respectable, and he was considered respectable because he was so predictable, right? You could always uh, tell what a Baggins would say on any subject without the trouble of asking him, we're told in chapter one of The Hobbit, right? Um, they're dependable, they're predictable, they're delightfully boring, Right, that's great. Everybody loves all that we're told that all the neighbors love that about the Bagginses. Um, n- now, what is what is more? Um, the Eric have to kind of back up from that uh, in a second. Um, notice that um, notice that he is. Um, what is at stake with the neighbors is different. So it's not just that his reputation has changed. Right, he was the the respectable and totally predictable uh, uh, Mr. Baggins. Now he is um, very peculiar, right? He is peculiar. If you if you look at words that are used, he's peculiar. He's remarkable. Um, the word unexpected is used, right? Of his of of his you know his. his Disappearance was remarkable, and his return unexpected. Right? Those both those are both names or you know words which would have been uh, uh, very, very, not only strange but unfortunate to use of him. Right? In chapter one of the Hobbit, um, we're told at the end of the book. Indeed, we're told at the beginning of the Hobbit that he lost his reputation. Right? You remember that that sentence um, in the Hobbit uh, in chapter one of the Hobbit where it says, um, "This is the story of how a Baggins had an adventure." Um, he lost his neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you'll see if you, you know, we'll see if you think he gained anything, right, it says. Um, so, again, the issue, right, in 
sort of for Bilbo's character, for Bilbo's character within the frame of his neighbors and culture was the question of respectability. He had respectability because he was boring at the beginning. He loses it at the end because he goes on adventures. So notice that, again, it's not just that he's no longer respectable. That we already knew from the end of The Hobbit. But notice there's a bigger shift here. The question, that, that's not even the question they're asking about him. No one is saying, like, is he respectable or, or, or not respectable? Is he predictable or not predictable? Um, he is... Uh, um, he had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years. Right? Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years. So the relationship with him has changed over the last 60 years. Right? 60 years ago, when he returned from his adventure, people were just tutting at him right, and not respecting him anymore. Now, after 60 years, right, now that he's 111, his story... Right? His character, his reputation, is an object of wonder in the Shire. And wonder is a new element and a somewhat strange element. Right? Um, yes, Gilgir, I agree. The hobbits described in, in The Hobbit don't seem to have much of a capacity for wonder. Yes, uh, it, it certainly it, it doesn't seem to be um, it doesn't seem to be a big thing. Indeed, Gilgir it was one of the things that made Bilbo kind of weird, right? It was one of the things that was sort of somewhat queer in his makeup, right? That he probably inherited from his took side. We see that he has a capacity for wonder. Bilbo's reaction to the song that the dwarves sing in his parlor uh, in chapter one of The Hobbit shows when he has that imaginative moment when his, his heart is filled with the desire of the hearts of dwarves, right? When he's moved by their song and kind of enters into it in his own imagination. Um, he shows he has a capacity for wonder, right? But yeah, that's not that's not general. Exactly, uh, Gilguir, and I think Tony had said this earlier before. Um, we're told that uh, again in chapter one of the Hobbit that he was not so prosy as he liked to believe, right? Well, but so notice this: it's not just that he's no longer prosy, and it's not even merely that he no longer values his prosiness, right? That he no longer. Um, uh, he no longer um, th- uh, uh, prides himself on prosiness. He no longer considers himself prosy. It's not just that he himself is personally famous for now spouting poetry. He's literally not prosy anymore, right? They all—they're all afraid when he starts giving his speech that that he's going to start reciting poetry, right? What a bore that would be, and they're all hoping he won't do it. Um, they're all afraid that some song or some poem was now imminent uh, when he's making his speech, and he refuses to, uh, to, to, to to shut up and let them drink his health. Right? We looked at some of that last time. Um, but but anyway, it's not just that. What, to me, is so striking here is the difference in the reaction of everybody else. Of course, Bilbo has changed. We saw that happen in The Hobbit, and it's not shocking that his change has continued and deepened over the 60 years since then. What, to me, is very striking is that the entire Hobbit culture around him has changed. And it seems, quite likely, largely changed because of his influence. That is, um, he is he is, he is an institution, right? Um, he is uh, 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 the riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, right? And notice, um, somebody was just asking about belief. You know, do the, do the hobbits believe him? Um, yes. Notice what they don't believe. 
uh, let's see, uh, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. So the people do disbelieve, but what they disbelieve is the stories that would reduce the wonder of Mr. Baggins, not increase. It's not that they doubt that, oh yeah, whatever. He brought home treasure from foreign parts. Yeah, I bet. Show me the treasure, buddy. Right? That's not their reaction. At least that's not the reaction of the next generation of hobbits. Really the second, but next. Right? Gaffer Gamgee represents the, the, the younger generation to Bilbo. Right? So his kids, like Sam, are the, like the, you know, the, the grandkid generation from Bilbo. And clearly, um, they, at least, whatever the old folk might say, so Gaffer Gamgee may say, as he is indeed going to say later in the chapter, there are not tunnels full of treasure, right? I know there aren't tunnels full of treasure. I live in that hill, for one thing, right? Um, and he talks about, he remembers when, when Bilbo came home. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and remember the gaffer's words. I don't doubt, right? He says that, you know, he, he came home with a couple big sacks and with several sacks and a couple big chests. And the gaffer says, I don't doubt they were mostly filled with treasure he picked up in foreign parts, right? Which, by the way, that's an interesting sentence right there. Really? He doesn't doubt it? He comes home with chests strapped to his pony and everyone's like, well, treasure given, Right. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense, and of course we know it to be in fact true. Um, but to me, the um, uh, to me the really remarkable thing is that he is. Um, uh, to me, the really re- remarkable thing is that he is um, uh, believed at all. There's nobody who seems to just doubt him. Like I, you know, I don't know where you've been, but I don't believe you are out. You know doing whatever you say you were doing. I don't believe there's any dragon involved. I don't believe you've, you're bringing home a treasure from a dragon's hoard from a dwarf mountain far away. Um, no, actually, they kind of seem willing to believe that stuff, right? Um, uh, so, and again, this suggests their, this shows their capacity, their capacity for wonder. Um and uh, and yes, uh, uh, John Usglas is back this week. Um, yeah, I, I also find the reference to the old folks as the ones who are more likely to disbelieve. Uh, so the, the younger generation is more likely to believe than the old, which may still hold the attitudes described in The Hobbit. Yes, possibly. Possibly. Um, and again, the other thing there is that the old folks will remember, right? Again, like the gaffer does. Um, they know he didn't bring back wagons and wagons full of gold, right? Um, uh so, you know, and in this economy, right, he doesn't have a credit card. So if he didn't bring home physical sacks of gold or, you know, like wagons and wagon loads of gold, uh, then uh, he can't be that rich, right? Not as rich as people want to imagine him being. But again, what the, what does this show us about sort of the direction that Hobbit society is moving around Bilbo? It shows that it's moving in the direction of an increasing capacity for wonder, in a sense, Right. The younger generation likes to imagine that Mr. Baggins is even richer and more wonderful than probably he really is. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and Archimago, I agree. Surely Bilbo is the first real local legend in the Shire since Ben Dobrus took. I would, uh, I would count in sort of a lesser way. I would count the old Took. Um, he's clearly a, a, a legendary figure. Um, but, um, 
but I, I would think that Bilbo actually outranks him now. I mean, I, I agree that uh, Bullroarer Took is probably the only Hobbit in Hobbit history who will really rival um, Mr. Baggins uh, for peculiarity and wonder. Um, anyway, so so I think it's kind of fascinating to so this is the first cue that we get. Oh wait, but another thing, it will have to be paid for. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. That by itself is an interesting thing, right? Um, remember the gaffer? That was one of his phrases. Trouble will come of it, right? It's no wonder that trouble that trouble came of it, right? Um, he says that twice when talking about going about in boats on that great river, right? Um, it isn't natural and trouble and, 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 you know, it's no wonder that trouble came of it, um, is almost exactly what Gaffer Gamgee says about paddling around in boats. Um, but with Bilbo, and in this case, right, that's, this is a different, it's the same words, but it's a different context. When the Gaffer says it about boating, right, this is the Gaffer saying, that activity, boating, right, is so dangerous and something that hobbits aren't supposed to be doing that you're taking your life in your hands, right? So it's no wonder. Like, if you go out in a boat, you're just asking to be drowned, right? So, you know, obviously, no, it's no wonder that uh, that trouble of that kind, drowning, came from it, because that's quite what you would expect. Um, but, but, yeah, Tony, I, I agree with what I think you're saying there. Um, there seems to be something magical about this, right? When they say it isn't natural, they don't just mean this isn't the kind of thing that hobbits don't aren't meant to do, like boating, right? They mean there's something magical here, right? There must be some spell at work. Where, I mean, because notice both of those two things, perpetual youth and inexhaustible wealth, those are both very common fairy tale motifs, aren't they? Right? Uh, inexhaustible bags of money magical bags that are of money that are inexhaustible and perpetual youth are both things that are conferred by fairies in fairy tales, right? That's known. So what they seem to be suggesting when they're looking at Bilbo and saying it isn't natural, they seem to be op- open to the idea that something fantastic is happening. Something ma- there's, that there's a magical, possibly a magical explanation for what they're seeing in Mr. Baggins. And notice also that they're saying it will have to be paid for, right? Because, you know, uh, most, you know, if you read most of those fairies, you know, most of the fairy tales in question, they, uh, um, they, trouble often comes of it, right? There often is a price, to be paid for that kind of thing, either that kind of wealth or that kind of, you know, immortality or perpetual youth, right? So, it's part of the framework, right? They take that for granted. When they notice this, they're like, A, this is uncanny, B, it's probably magical, and C, everybody knows it's probably going to be a price to be paid, right? And that, I think, is really interesting. Um, Okay, so... So that's an interesting start. From the beginning, we can see the framework that Bilbo is operating in is different. But that seems to be, in large part, I suspect, um, what I think we're supposed to understand is that Bilbo himself has led to changing that, 
right? Um, Bilbo has become a local legend um, and has been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years. And 60 years of marveling at Bilbo seems to have brought about some changes in the culture, especially in the younger generation, right? And this we seem to be able to get... um, uh, this we seem to be able to get just from this second paragraph of the story. Okay, so so let's keep going. With uh, so one of the things, of course, that's strange about Bilbo is his connection to the outside world. So uh, we get all these outlandish folk. Days passed, and the day drew nearer. An odd-looking wagon, laden with odd-looking packages, rolled into Hobbiton one evening and toiled up the hill to Bag End. The startled hobbits peered out of lamplit doors to gape at it. It was driven by outlandish folk, singing strange songs, dwarves with long beards and deep hoods. A few of them remained at Bag End. At the end of the second week in September, a cart came in through Bywater from the direction of Brandywine Bridge in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat, a long gray cloak, and a silver scarf. He had a long white beard and bushy eyebrows that stuck out beyond the brim of his hat. Small hobbit children ran after the cart all through Hobbiton and right up to the and right up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks, as they rightly guessed. At Bilbo's front door, the old man began to unload. There were great bundles of fireworks of all sorts and shapes, each labeled with a large red G and the elf rune G. I've messed that up, of course, because I didn't have the font to do the Tengwar and the and the uh, the 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 Fanorian G, um, you know, the Kirth G which is included in the text there. Um, that was Gandalf's mark, of course, and the old man was Gandalf the wizard, whose fame in the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smokes, and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. To them, he was just one of the attractions of, at the party. Okay, so, couple general things here. First of all, yes, Freda, I have thought about how bushy eyebrows must be to stick out uh, beyond the brim of a hat, and I, I will say it's been my uh, it's been my lifelong ambition to grow out my eyebrows so that they stand out past the brim of my hat. Um, um, I'm still working on it. I've got I, I've got a long ways to go still, but it's it it uh, remains a goal. Um, now, notice. Remember again the context, right? Remember this is this is this is the Hobbit sequel. Right, um, and of course we've been given the cue to compare Chapter One of the Fellowship of the Ring and Chapter One of the Hobbit in the title, right? Um, which gives us both the parallel and the contrast between the two parties, the unexpected and the long expected parties. Um, I love how the story here in the Fellowship of the Ring begins once more with dwarves showing up at Bag End with Gandalf again. Right, the dwarves show up first, and Gandalf comes in after. Right. Um, and it's just it's just it's it's just kind of lovely, right? And it really emphasizes the difference, of course, between the long expected and the unexpected party. But again, it it you know, Bilbo. Remember how embarrassed Bilbo was when he was leaving, right, with the dwarves in chapter in the beginning in the very beginning of chapter two. He, he was he was glad that nobody would rec- would mistake him for a dwarf, right? And he was he was all kind of hiding his face in the hood. Um, now, you know, he, uh, he sort of openly, um, uh, op- openly welcoming, you know, the dwarves, uh, to his house. They are the sign again that the party is about to begin. Um, and, uh, 
and the, and then there's Gandalf, right? And of course, Gandalf is the story maker. He is tied with all sorts of wondrous things and especially adventures. Um, again, we see that in chapter one of The Hobbit, and once more, when he shows up, adventures spring up out of the grass, right? Um, he is part, well, his fireworks are part of a legendary past, right? So we have, with Gandalf and Gandalf's fireworks, a revival of a legendary, of a wondrous legend, legend, you know, Hobbit legend, right? The legend of the fireworks at the old Took's birthday parties, right? Which Gandalf used to do. Um, and we get that one, that one hint, right? That one, uh, glimpse of something greater going on. One of the first indications of the actual plot of the story, right? His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. To them, he was just one of the attractions at the party, Right. So, yes, his real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. In that moment, the narrator, notice how the narrator is kind of peeking over the heads of the hobbits at us. The hobbits don't have any idea, really, what's going on, right? We're, we're given this signal that we, especially as readers of The Hobbit, are prepared to receive, right? That there's something in the wider world going on that the hobbits, them, you know, the hobbits here of the Shire don't understand, don't see entirely. Um, and, uh, um, but we recognize and understand, um, what's, uh, what's going on, but we don't know what his difficult and dangerous business is, right? Um, at least not yet. We don't have any reason to think that we know what it is. Um, okay. I want to look briefly at his fireworks, because his fireworks are so important, um, as the, uh, in the Hobbit, the, the, Bilbo's own memory of the fireworks at the Old Took's party is one of the things which Gandalf takes as a really good sign. Right? It's the it's the his description of the fi- his verbal description of the fireworks, his memory of the fireworks, um, which was very flowery, full of flower uh, flower images, um, was um, the 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 that not prosy thing about him. Right, which where he was showing the not the non prosy elements of his character. Um, here's the description of the fireworks. Tell me what you notice. Tell me anything that jumps out at you. There were rockets like a flight of scintillating birds singing with sweet voices. There were green trees and with trunks of dark smoke. Their leaves opened like a whole spring unfolding in a moment, and their shining branches dropped glowing flowers down upon the astonished hobbits, disappearing with a sweet scent just before they touched their upturned faces. There were fountains of butterflies that flew glittering into the trees. There were pillars of colored fires that rose and turned into eagles, or sailing ships, or a phalanx of flying swans. There was a red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain. There was a forest of silver spears that sprang suddenly into the air with a yell like an embattled army, and came down again into the water with a hiss like a hundred hot snakes." And there was also one last surprise in honor of Bilbo, and it startled the hobbits exceedingly, as Gandalf intended. The lights went out. A great smoke went up. It shaped itself like a mountain seen in the distance, and began to glow at the summit. It spouted green and scarlet flames. Out flew a red-golden dragon, not life-size, but terribly lifelike. Fire came from its jaws. His eyes glared down. There was a roar, and he whizzed three times over the heads of the crowd. 
They all ducked, and many fell flat on their faces. The dragon passed like an express train, turned a somersault, and burst over Bywater with a deafening explosion. That is the signal for supper, said Bilbo. Okay. Um, all right. So, what do you notice? What do you notice about the fireworks? Um, eternity, I agree. It is a very euphonious group of words. It's, uh, it's a beautiful description. It's a, it's a beautiful sounding description. And that seems to me to be one of the primary elements of the, of the display, right? It causes awe and wonder. But it's not just spectacular, Right? It doesn't just cause fear. The dragon causes fear, but it's not just that, right? Um, it's beautiful, and notice how how many of the sen- how many of the senses are involved, right? Not just sight, um, but the different sounds that are described, the smells. Um, you know, the, the the birds are singing with sweet voices, and the the the, the glowing flowers disappear with a sweet scent. Um, you know, the uh, the the yell like an embattled, embattled army and a hiss like a hundred hot snakes. Um, there's, uh, there's all, there's all manner of stuff here, right? Um, this is really a work of art and it's a work of art that celebrates lots of different things where it's like the hobbits are being exposed to lots of things that they, you know, both things that are marvelous, right? Things that are just like nature, but, um, either imitations of nature, like the green trees with the trunks of dark smoke, right? Um, or things that are strange, like fountains of butterflies, um, pillars of colored fires that turn into eagles or sailing ships or a phalanx of swans, right? One thing transforming into another. A red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain. Like, what's interesting about that? Well, it's just the colors, right? It's different. That's not the normal color of thunderstorms and rain, right? So these things are all um, are all uh, uh, wonderful. But yeah, good, exactly. Um, uh, Lincoln is crediting, crediting Gilglear with pointing out uh, that it's also kind of a retelling of the story of the Hobbit. There are certainly elements, lots of elements of Bilbo's stories um, being uh, being alluded to here, right? And if you, again, if you know The Hobbit well, you can see the different things, right? There's no sailing ships in The Hobbit, but most of the rest of the things that we get there are uh, are involved. And of course, if you know the Silmarillion material, you can see that he's touching on, Gandalf is touching on some legendary um, ideas, right? The sailing ships and the phalanx of flying swans and those things are uh, are elements out of, out of old stories, which The Hobbits probably don't know, but which are also there. Um, but, uh, cool. So, um, yes, uh, uh, Pumpkin Muffin, I agree. He does seem to be trying to expose the hobbits to stuff outside their own protective bubble. And in particular, I would point to the dragon here. Um, remember the idea of the dragon in the first chapter of The Hobbit? That moment when Bilbo is having that dwarvish fantasy, right? When he uh, gets swept away, when he gets carried away by by hearing their song, and he sees um, uh, in the distance a fire spring up, probably somebody lighting a wood fire, right? But um, but he sees a little, and, and, and it immediately makes him think of dragons descending on the hill, right? 
and immediately he's like scared straight, right? He's he's he he is at once Mr. Baggins of Bag and Underhill again, right? Um, he ceases to he's he's taken right out of his fantasy by the um, the shock of that uh, uh, of that imagination. So Pumpkin Muffin, as you say, um, Gandalf is basically compelling all of the hobbits to imagine this, right? Imagine a dragon descending upon you, right? In a sense, this is also like a defense of Bilbo. Bilbo's doubtless told the story of the dragon uh, many times. There are probably people who don't believe him. Um, And so here is Gandalf dramatizing it, right? Here's what it was like, right? Here's what it would have looked like. Um, This is what Bilbo has been telling you about all these years. But at the same time, I, I agree that I think the important element there is that kind of shaking of their complacency, right? Gandalf intended to startle the hobbits exceedingly with that, we're told, right? Startlement is what he was going for there. He wants to scare them, not just to awe them, not just to impress them, but to scare them. Um, He apparently thinks that it will be uh, good for them in some way. Um, Yeah, good. Good. And, uh, yeah, Hugo, the express train reference, of course, is in a sense anachronistic. Of course it's not, um, because, again, the narrator of the story is a modern person, right? Uh, the modern compiler and translator of the text for our benefit. Um, so the, the narrator is just a modern person talking to us, so the modern narrator can compare the sound the dragon makes to an express train. The hobbits, of course, weren't thinking of express trains because they don't have them. Um, but the narrator can evoke that so that we can think of an express train and therefore know what it sounded like. But he doesn't do that anymore after a while, right? Tolkien's going to get away from that. Um, uh, Yeah, Uh, Mode Snoder says it's like interpretive dance with fireworks. In a sense, yeah. It's it's like a a dramatization. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. More. Let's go ahead to the, the other blinding flash that we get. Thirdly and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement. He spoke this last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who still could. I regret to announce that, though, as I said, eleventy-one years is far too short a time to spend among you, this is the end. I am going. I am leaving now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light, and the guests all blinked. When they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. One hundred and forty-four flabbergasted hobbits sat back speechless. Old Odo Proudfoot removed his feet from the table and stamped. Then there was a dead silence, until suddenly, after several deep breaths, every Baggins, Boffin, Took, Brandybuck, Grub, Chub, Burrows, Bulger, Bracegirdle, Brockhouse, Goodbuddy, Hornblower, and Proudfoot began to talk at once. It was generally agreed that the joke was in very bad taste, and more food and drink were needed to cure the guests of shock and annoyance. He's mad, I always said so, was probably the most popular comment. Even the Tooks, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behavior was absurd. For the moment, most of them took it for granted that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. Okay. Um, Yeah. 
Um, good, yeah. Uh, Michelle was saying that perhaps Gandalf, about the fireworks again, perhaps Gandalf uh, felt that he needed to prepare them, uh, in a sense, for what was to come, that there's a possibility that these things can come straight home to their quiet little world. Uh, perhaps I'm not sure it was quite as grim as that at that point, but certainly I want to show you that there's more going on here, right? I want to show you that uh, there is a wider world beyond your narrow experience is certainly one of the things that he's doing. Um, notice a couple things about this. Um, notice on the one hand, what Bilbo's doing is a deliberate recapitulation, right? That is to say, what happened the last time there was a party at Bag End involving dwarves and Gandalf, right? He disappeared, right? You know, again, if we go back to that, uh, to that first passage, right? Um, his remarkable disappearance, right? So he had a, a remarkable disappearance and an unexpected return before, right? Here now he's saying there's not going to be any unexpected where you can expect me not to return, um, but he's going to have another, another, uh, another sudden disappearance again, right? Um, that is to say, the parallel between the two parties, the, long, the unexpected and the long expected, seems to be something which is not just established by Tolkien, the narrator, Right? It's established by Bilbo himself. Bilbo himself is deliberately constructing this. There was a party with dwarves at his house, and he vanished before. He's going to throw an, an even bigger party, including dwarves, at Bag End this time. He's going to do it differently, but he's going to disappear again. Right? And this time, much more self-consciously and much more spectacularly and much more publicly. Um... In this sense, it's almost like a joke at his own expense. Like he's he's if he's making a joke, he's making it. He's alarming and offending his friends and relations, but it's also almost like a joke at his own expense, right? Like he's dramatizing, um, or even exaggerating. This is what I, the peculiar Bilbo Baggins, do. Right? I vanish occasionally, so off he goes. Um, and yeah, exactly, Llama Lady. Yeah, uh, uh, good to see you here. Uh, Bingo is going to have a hand in creating and starting the story this time. Yes, exactly. Bilbo is not... Um, in, at the beginning of The Hobbit, Bilbo is the victim of adventure, right? He is, the, um, he is not the agent, he is the patient. Adventure happens to him, and he has no idea. For the life of him, he, you know, he never remembered how he ended up running down the, down the lane from his door. Right without his hat or his coat or any money or his pocket handkerchiefs, did I say bingo? I'm sorry. I'm doing the return of the return of the shadow. Which, uh, sorry, I meant Bilbo, of course. Anyway, yes. Um, so here, where um, where Bilbo um, was completely, you know, uh, swept away by adventure, he's deliberately orchestrating it uh, this time, and that's that's kind of a fun... Con- and again, it's, to me, it sounds like a joke uh, at his own expense. But notice one other thing here. Um, they... Although we saw, you know, we, we saw earlier that the, the, the issue of his losing the respect of the neighbors is no longer really an issue, right? That's... The relationship between Bilbo and his neighbors has moved past that in the last 60 years. It's not, respectability and predictability is no longer what anybody expects of Mr. Baggins. Right? The name Baggins is now synonymous with quite other things and not with predictability anymore. However, they move here in this passage from wonder to scorn. He's mad. I always said so. 
right, is the most popular comment. Um, everybody thinks that his joke is in very bad taste. Nobody approves, right? Um, so although he seems, his kind of adventurousness seems to have been generally accepted, this is not accepted. But notice something. Um, the scorn that they're showing that they're showing for him is premised on, well, notice what the other hobbits seem to think is happening, right? They don't get, um, for the moment most of them took it for granted, that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. They don't believe he's really gone. They think he's just having them on. So as far as they can see, what happened was he decided at the end of his speech to do this disappearing act, right? There was some blinding flash, right? Um, and they all blinked and then he was gone. So, like, what did he do? Like, he hit under a table or something? It's a, that would be a ridiculous prank, right? To be like, I'm giving my farewell, my, my, I'm giving my birthday speech, right? And then I'm going to disappear and then you won't see me again at the party, ha ha ha, right? That's a little joke. Right, that's um, that's uh, you know, it's uh, pretty tame, right? It would be a little bit ridiculous. I mean, like for an eleven-year-old guy to be doing essentially like magic tricks, like I know my disappearing act, right? He might as well juggle or something at the end of it. I, I mean, I, I, he maybe better for him to recite poetry or something. Um, in other words, the scorn that they show for him at the end of this speech is premised upon their disbelief in the idea that he's really gone. The idea that he's gone for good, that he means his announcement, that he's that this is the end, and that he's going and leaving now, that this is really goodbye, they, they, can't, they can't parse that, right? Um, it was unexpected that he returned before, because they all thought he was dead. Um, but the idea that he would go away and not want to return never plan to return. He actually leave and never come back. Um, that, they don't even seem to, to, to parse that, right? They don't even seem to get that at all. And that too is kind of interesting. It just shows us kind of in a sense the, sort of the limits, right? The limits of, um, of their willingness to kind of go along with Bilbo's, you know, countercultural way of looking at things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Finn, you're right. Gandalf's flash causes them to think it was a prank. If there was no flash, it would point to real magic. Well, yes and no. I think they would still think it was a prank. I think that if, um, if they, um, if they saw him vanish into thin air right in front of them, um, I think that they would still, um, they would still, I remember when the people at Bree see that, when it happens to Frodo later on, um, they're distrustful, um, but they're, like, people are ready to dismiss it, Butterbur anyway is ready to dismiss it as tumbling or conjuring or whatever, like it's some kind of magic trick, right? Um, but probably not like, I have a magic ring that makes me invisible. That doesn't seem to be on their radar screen, really. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, Bialver, exactly. I do think that uh, Gandalf's hope that the blinding flash 
um, will be kind of interpreted as, as, as in the fireworks class of Marvels. Um, yes, because right after the fireworks, blinding flash, right? Doesn't seem improbable. Um, but, uh, so again, but, but the point that I want to make, though, it's not just about, like, did he vanish into thin air or did he not vanish into thin air? Um, the point is, is he gone or is he not gone? And they all assume he's not gone, right? He's not really. He's going he's gonna to come back tomorrow and be laughing at, like, oh, oh boy, I got, I got all of you, right? I played my joke. I, I vanished out of the party and you guys didn't know where I went. He's, he's assuming that, right? Um, okay. Let me... Uh, um, Exactly. More a theatrical trick than a magical one. Exactly. And Gandalf's flash does ensure that it looks more theatrical than magical. But again, even if it looked to be magical, or even if they were really freaked out by seeing him vanish into thin air, um, they still would not believe that he was actually leaving the Shire. And they would never see him again. Right? That's the really... uh, This is the way in which Bilbo remains, I think, Countercultural, very profoundly countercultural, right? Even with the shifting of the culture around him. Um, okay, we're almost done. A couple other quick things. Um, two points I want to make. I want to. I want to look at the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo briefly, um, and then one last small point in which you'll see I'll be cheating, and then we'll stop for tonight, and well, then we'll go on our field trip tonight. Gandalf is being very cautious with Frodo about the story of the ring. What do you know already? Only what Bilbo told me. I have heard his story, how he found it, and how he used it. On his journey, I mean. Which story, I wonder, said Gandalf. Oh, not what he told the dwarves and put in his book, said Frodo. He told me the true story soon after I came to live here. He said you had pestered him till I told you, so I had better know too. No secrets between us, Frodo, he said, but they are not to go any any further. It's mine anyway. That's interesting, said Gandalf. Well, what did you think of it all? If you mean inventing all that about a present, well, I thought the true story much more likely, and I couldn't see the point of altering it at all. It It was very unlike Bilbo to do so anyway, and I thought it rather odd. So, okay. Notice several things here. Firstly, um... I have to admit to you that I was long in confusion about this passage, right? I didn't have any idea what they were talking about. Um, When Gandalf says, which story, I wonder, I was like, there's two stories? And when Frodo says, not what he told the dwarves and put in his book, I was like, wait, I thought his book was The Hobbit. Um, And then when they go on to say what the true story is, I'm like, that is the story in the book. So I did, I, you know, I mean, I, I kind of rolled with it. You know, I kind of went along with it like, okay, uh, he lied to the dwarves, I guess, off stage, whatever. It's not in The Hobbit, but okay. Um, but um, anyway, so just, I won't talk about it because I've talked about this a lot in many other places, and I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about this before. Um, but of course, what Tolkien is referring to, he is assuming not only that every, that most everybody reading this chapter is going to have read The Hobbit before, but of course... In 1954, when he first publishes this, he's assuming that they all will have read the original version of The Hobbit. Uh, and he wrote, he rewrote a new version of Chapter 5, the version of Chapter 5 that pretty much all of us knew, that all of us grew up reading, is the later edition 
of the hum, and it was changed, um, but it was changed late. It was uh, uh, it had been out already for a decade before Tolkien changed it. Um, so he rewrote the Gollum story, and he rewrote that after he began developing the Lord of the Rings story. Um, so in the original version, Gollum actually is planning to give the ring to Bilbo. He still finds it, um, but Gollum's intention all along had been to give him the ring. He was never going to show him the way out. Um, the terms of the bargain were of the riddle game bargain was either I will eat you or I will give you a present. Um, so, yeah, John Osclos, I agree. Tolkien is, is amazing at retcon. It's just, this is just the most brilliant piece of retcon he's ever done. Um, one of the main realities that this story is built on, therefore, is that the published Hobbit that most all of his readers were familiar with contains this version of the story that he's not going to use. He's, he's, he's come up with a different version of that story. So he acknowledges that. Right, and he he makes the fact that Bilbo lied about it. Right, that that that, that the first edition of the Hobbit is a lie, is a cover up by Bilbo. Right, he made that up. Gollum never really intended to give him the ring, but he wanted to make it sound like it did. Right, and we can see why. Right, no secrets between us, Frodo, but they are not to go any further. It's mine anyway, he says. It's mine anyway. I don't need to justify it. Right. But it was for justification of my ownership that I admit that I told that story, right? Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I just just to make sure everyone is everyone is clear on on that. So, but but again, notice the emphasis that he he's trying to just to, to solidify and justify his ownership. And notice how cautious Gandalf is being. What do you know already? Which story? I wonder. That's interesting. Well, what did you think of it all? Notice how he's probing Frodo. Right? He seems to be trying to figure out what do you know, and this might, might not be the right way to say it exactly, but in what frame of mind are you beginning your ownership of the ring? Right? Do you know what you're getting? And if you do, what do you think about it? Right? That seems. To, notice how Gandalf is fishing for stuff here. Right? Oops, I just got logged out. How about I enter again? Um, uh, you know, what do I think of it all? If I mean inventing all that about a present, well, the, I thought the true story much more likely, and I couldn't see the point of altering it at all. Um, so he thinks it's rather odd. Well, now let's continue on. So did I. But odd things may happen to people that have such treasures if they use them. Let it be a warning to you to be very careful with it. It may have other powers than just making you vanish when you wish to. I don't understand, said Frodo. Neither do I, answered the wizard. I have merely begun to wonder about the ring, especially since last night. No need to worry, but if you take my advice, you will use it very seldom or not at all. At least I beg you not to use it in any way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion. I say again, keep it safe and keep it secret. You are very mysterious. What are you afraid of? I am not certain, so I will say no more. I may be able to tell you something when I come back. I am going off at once, so this is goodbye for the present." Gandalf's playing it really close to the chest here, right? Um, he's not giving anything away. He's not sure what's going on, um, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he has begun to wonder about the ring, especially since last night. Um, notice his point about begging Frodo not to use it in any way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion, right? Bilbo was a wonder and a local legend, right? Don't follow in his footsteps in that way, 
right? Try not to to make it cause to 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 let it cause talk. Of course, notice also how he's uh, acknowledging the gossip culture of the Shire as well, right? Uh, that's um, that's that's totally a thing. Um, now we'll come back to Gandalf's suspicions about the ring and all that kind of thing. We'll talk about that more next week, and and then in the following weeks when we get on into chapter two. Um, I don't want to I don't want to take too much more time on that tonight. So let's just finish with one glance at sort of the end of Bilbo's story as far as the Shire hobbits are concerned here in uh, in chapter one. Okay, true confession. I cheated. This is the first paragraph of chapter two. The talk did not die down in nine or even ninety-nine days. The second disappearance of Mr. Bilbo Baggins was discussed in Hobbiton, and indeed all over the Shire, for a year and a day, and was remembered much longer than that. It became a fireside story for young hobbits, and eventually Mad Baggins, who used to vanish with a bang and a flash and reappear with bags of jewels and gold, became a favorite character of legend, and lived on long after the true events were forgotten. But in the meantime, the general opinion in the neighborhood was that Bilbo, who had always been rather cracked, had at last gone quite mad and had run off into the blue. There he had undoubtedly fallen into a pool or a river and come to a tragic but hardly an untimely end. So this is the end of Bilbo's fame. Um, His fame lingers on, right? But notice the elements that are retained about them, right? Uh, About... uh, about Bilbo. First, his name. He's called Mad Baggins. That's the, that's the, you know, he's mad, I always said so, is the most popular remark when he disappears. But again, it wasn't for going off on journeys, because they didn't think he, when they were saying that, they didn't think he had gone off on a journey, right? They thought he was just doing magic tricks, which is sufficiently crazy for an 11-year-old hobbit to be doing, right? Uh, you wouldn't expect a distinguished guy. I mean, he's got to be the oldest hobbit in the district at this point, right? So he's he's older than every other hobbit present, probably, and um, and yet here he is, like what, playing, doing parlor tricks, right? I look at me, I vanished, right? I mean, okay, he's always been somewhat cracked, right? And now he's gone completely off the edge. Um, so uh, he he he's called, but but the name sticks, right? Mad Baggins. Um, how is he mad? What is mad about him? Right? Wh- wh- wherein does his insanity lie? Um, and it seems to be the arbitrariness of his actions. right? And again, that's what, like, the unexpectedness of his actions has always been a major element, right, of his legend, his local legend. Um, but, you know, vanishing with a bang and a flash and reappearing with bags of jewels and gold... You know, why does he go away? Who knows? Where does he go? Not not a clue, right? Um, uh, you know, where does he get his bags of jewels and gold? Nobody knows. What does he do with them when he gets here? Hides them in a hill, probably. Um, we don't know. So, uh, again, it's the, it's the arbitrariness of his actions that seems to really uh, be at the core of the lingering legend which uh, endures long after the true events were forgotten. Um, and yet, C. Uh, uh, Schwab, I agree, to Hobbit's the most incomprehensible thing is that he would want to leave the Shire exactly. They weren't even parsing that at first, and when they finally did come to understand it, they they do seem... I mean, again, that's why that seems to be part of his, uh, part of his legacy. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and good, 
uh, Marowina, he ceases being merely famous and unusual Bilbo Baggins of Bag End and becomes the mythological figure of old Mad Baggins. Exactly. Exactly. All right, well, next week we're going to talk about chapter one more. Um, and what I want to do next week, I want to focus entirely on the conversation between Bilbo and Gandalf. This is really, I think, the, the center of chapter one, the most important scene in chapter one. Um, the confrontation and uh, the the moment when Bilbo gives up the ring, which is a pretty darn big deal. Um, we're going to spend all next week looking at that scene, okay? Um, so uh, uh, that's, that's going to be the focus of our discussion next week, and the week after that, we'll get to chapter two. Enough. Everything in its own time, right? But now it is field trip time! Uh, so we're going to do a field trip, and of course, as those of you uh, in the game know, and several of you have been alluding to it uh, in the text chat during um, uh, during the the discussion here, um, in the Yule Festival um, in uh, in Lotro, there's a there's a reference to the legend of Mad Baggins. Um, so for our field trip tonight, we're going to go to Frost Bluff and see a play. Uh, that's what that's what we're gonna do. So I think Maven is gonna come on and give some travel instructions. Yes, the disembodied voice of Maven because that's Maven right. is already in Frostbluff. All right. Um, so I'm actually gonna make this a lot simpler than I'd actually planned to because I know all the folks in the room tonight are are experienced players, and I want to try to make this as quick as possible. So we have three people in the Frostbluff Frostbluff Theater right now. Just in case there's layers in the theater besides the layers of Frostbluff, we're inside. And so there's three choices you have to ask for an uh, invite to fellowship. What we want you to do is get into a fellowship, ride to Frostbluff to ensure and get into the theater so that we ensure that you're in the same layer as us. Once you're in the theater, you know you're with us, then drop to fellowship so we can keep doing the same. The three people are me, Maven, M-A-E-V-E-N-N, Marie, M-A-R-I-E, and Hoofy, K-H-O-F-I. So if you would please send tells, and then the folks who come, if you have friends that are coming before you, you know, feel free to ask them for fellowship as well. But if we can get this going, we can get people moved over as quickly as possible. And there comes my first one. Oh, there it goes. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Okay. All right. So, All right, and Corey, so. I think you're going to need it too, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show up and see where I am. Okay. So come on in the theater if you see us. We're good. If not... Take care of you. Yeah, JJ forty eight brings up the interesting question. So, uh, how this play works in the Yule Festival is that um, you uh, the the several of the of the players in the theater are chosen to to act in the play. <clears throat> so there is a non zero chance that I will get chosen to act in the play, and uh, we'll see. Uh, We'll see what we'll we'll see what happens with that. Okay, let's see. I see I see Dime here. Are 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 we meeting outside the gates here? Come on into the theater. I'm I'm, oh. I'm worried that the theater might have its own layers. I so see. So we made, we actually went into the layer. By into the way, the I also itself. didn't say. I assume folks know you can get a free horse to the uh, festival from the Westgate stable. So if you yeah. come out the lower hall, down the stairs, make a left down to the stables, you'll see the free horse. Yeah. Okay, here we are. So this place where we are here is 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 Frost Bluff. Uh, it's a special area that is just here for the for the Yule Festival. You can see where 
hang on a second, where in uh, in Middle Earth they they put it. You can see the area door map. Uh, oh, do, didn't they show it on here before? I thought I could see my dots. Anyway, it's up it's up in the north near Forakel. Okay, so here's the festival theater. Coming into the theater hall now. See you. Oh, there you are. I'm here. Is that yes. you? No. I'm, I'm here. See you. Oops. No, you don't see me. Okay. Well, I am here. So I'm. Uh, I am. I'm here with. Uh, let's see. I see. I see D May and Binkles. I, there are several other people here. I'm gonna. Should I fellow with you then? fellow with you so you can just come right here and then and anybody that I haven't invited yet I will get to you I'm just making sure that folks get here and then I make sure they drop out okay all right and I hit the layers button and yes I want to transfer to the same layer as my fellowship leader okay there you are. I see Signum U. <laughs> That's right. My eagle precedes me. So, okay, here we are. All right. And I'll continue. If if you haven't arrived yet, let me know. Uh, in other words, if you haven't gotten a, a fellowship, let me know, and I'll get folks in. Hope we don't break the, I hope we don't break the theater. <laughs> <laughs> There oh. were a, there were a couple other people in that uh, were there okay in that lair that I just left. <laughs> of course, like if you're in another lair, you can see at least a very similar thing from there. So, oh, and by the way, I lo so I love um, the two hobbits up here, <laughs> uh, Statdoor Proudfoot and Waldo Tunnelly. Uh, the reference to Statler and Waldorf is uh, is 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 brilliant. So their 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 title is critic, and they're up there on the balcony, uh, making snarky comments about the play throughout the the performance. Okay, so um, so again, this is a, so notice this is a Hobbit play. All of the all of the attendees are hobbits, right? Um. So we're gonna wait. Has the play started yet? Has not started. I think it just finished. Actually, it just finished. Good. Okay. Yeah. All so right. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna see this play. And again, this is this is a play which, you know, sort of tells a uh, tells a relevant legend. Uh, I was uh, I was really interested to see this when uh, uh, the first time I ever came to the Yule Festival. Yeah, Marwina is wondering how many young people won't get the reference, the uh, Statler and Waldorf reference up in the balcony up there. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, they've tried to bring the Muppets back, but it's just uh, Muppets don't come off the same way nowadays, it seems, as they did back in the 70s and 80s. All right. All right. And yeah, exactly, Robert. I was I was interested in that. That despite the fact that that um, 
this, the town, right, Winterhome, the town that the festival takes place in, is a is a mannish town. There are no big fights. It's, it's entirely hobbits uh, in here on the benches, like apart from the players, of course. Um, but all of the non all of the NPC attendees of the play are all uh, are all hobbits, and I think that's again that that strikes me as an important thing. Um, you know, to understand the the context, right? It, it, it clearly gives us a context for the story we're going to see. All right, so how long until the uh, the play starts again? Um, the, when, when the uh, curtains open, um, it's usually about two minutes from that point. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. Curtains are opening. And he'll make an announcement. Now, if you don't want you... It, they, they pick people from the audience to be actors. So if you don't want to be an actor... Set yourself AFK, which is slash AFK, and it won't pick you as an actor. But if you want to be an actor, we'll be happy to throw pe- flower petals at you. Okay, yeah, I probably should set myself as AFK so I can you see this from should. the from <laughs> from the, it would be, I've never been chosen to be in the play before, and I would kind of like to be in the play, but well, but I, I, I you it. know to get the full effect, I, I should probably I should probably not. <laughs> it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it would be fun, but but I, I think I think the effect will be uh, will be better here. Um, I don't have any flower petals or rotten fruit, but I suppose I can. Uh, I suppose I can do without. Next show will begin in two minutes. Take the time to visit our concession stand. Right. And there'll be some fun stuff. Now, yeah, if you want to, if anybody wants to, hasn't been here before, there's a vendor back here who will sell you flower petals and rotten fruit. And they come in very handy during the play. Okay, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to maintain my, uh... Decorum? Uh, well, yes, my, 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 uh, my critical detachment here. <laughs> okay, so first let's look at the backdrop here. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I just automatically hit no when I saw something flash up here. Um, uh, so we see rolling hills. This is, I'm going to presume, a Shire setting. But it's not any particular Shire setting. Like, we don't have the hill, right, or anything. There's nothing really that we can, will recognize from this, um, from this backdrop. I love the little fake sunshine that's hanging in the front, right? Right, like a sort of golden spiky loop, which I think is supposed to be a sun. Though, of course, it's also very reminiscent of one of the quest rings that hangs above all the NPCs that give you quests, uh, which is kind of funny. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, so, okay, so I, vaguely Shire-like setting, but nowhere in particular. Um, okay. And uh, but there's a lamp post. Is that the only piece of setting that they have? Is a lamp post? There's no other like stage furniture. That's interesting. Okay. All right. First, a short introduction by our director. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Let's see. Oh, there'll be more scenery when the play starts. Right. Okay. I've only seen this play a couple times. Good evening, ladies and gentle hobbits. 
The Frost Bluff Theater, in association with the GLOB Acting Company, proudly present an evening of fine dining and entertainment. I am your host, Bill Shakesborough, and we have quite the show for you tonight. Due to, an unforese- due to unforeseen circumstances, our scheduled performance of An Ode to Old Blood Tusk will not take place tonight. <laughs> Instead, we have invited three members of our audience to take to the stage. Oh, goody. They will accompany the Globe in special a special performance of... Wait, what was it again? Of uh, The Curious Disappearance of Mad Baggins. Okay, while we ready the new actors, take this time to visit the concession stand. Okay, okay. So there's uh, the parts are party goer, Gandalf, and who else? Oh, Bilbo, right? Of course. Bilbo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love an ode to old blood tusk. Um, I saw that was the normally scheduled play was the ode to old to old blood tusk. Um, I wonder if that's meant to be a meant to be an inside joke on you know like the the sort of ferociousness of of the Elizabethan theater and the theater context right i because I, I, I mean there were lots of like animal fights and bear baiting and stuff like that that went on at the globe theater um yeah i mean like at at at, at, at normal theaters um so the fact that they have this like apparently very bloody uh violent play planned originally uh, seems like kind of a joke. Um, exactly, Naimo. Exit chased by a bear. That's that's it. That's it. Um, yeah, Old Blood Tusk. Do I, do I remember Old Blood Tusk? Didn't I do a quest, a quest with a boar named Blood Tusk? I have a vague memory of this. He's this guy. He's got to be. He's got to be somewhere. Okay. All right. It's the name of the boar that shows up in a quest in Prengwith in Dunland. You know. Thank you. Uh, oh, here we go. The curious disappearance of Mad Baggins. Not so very long ago, in the sleepy town of Hobbiton. The notable Mr. Bilbo Baggins was preparing his birthday celebration. I am so excited for Mr. Bilbo's party. I've heard he will spare no expense. Every guest will receive a sack of gold and jewels from his hidden fortune. Why, the postman has just delivered your invitation. Oh, this is the party goer. Okay. It should be a marvelous time. Hooray! Oh, strong work. He delivered his line well. The whole of the Shire began to feel the excitement. Hobbits marked their calendars and eagerly anticipated the fateful day. But not all of the guests had the same good intentions. Uh-oh. Mwahaha! Gandalf! Our plans are in motion! The day of Mad Baggins's party is almost upon us! What evil plan do you have up your sleeve, Gandalf? Oh, where's Gandalf? Gandalf's going to be played by another one of the player characters here. Where is he? Uh, Yes, we'll trick him into... 
and so the day of the party failed. What happened to Gandalf? The, the hobbits lined up all down the hill, even as far as the three-farthing stone. And Bilbo stood at his gate with his nephew to greet them each in turn. Oh, Bilbo, our party is going to be splendid. It's going splendidly. I'm not sure anything could spoil such a wonderful day. Why, look, it's our cousins, the Proudfoots. Why don't you say hello, Uncle? <laughs> The party was very successful. Food, drink, and music were all in plenty. Though some were getting suspicious of some of the more nefarious guests. I love that. Some of the more nefarious guests. I must say, I've never had so much fun in all my life. But who invited the sour-looking dwarf? Oh, well, how are you enjoying the party? Okay, so the dwarves are villains, too. Or at least notice their outsider status is being very marked. Oh, you think there might be something to worry about? Perhaps you're right. And so the party continued. He's getting rotten fruit thrown at him. All throughout the day, there was feasting and merriment. While the hobbits were preparing dinner, others were preparing something completely different. Everything is going according to plan, Gandalf. So who's the evil conspiring hobbit? No one suspects a thing, not even that pesky Frodo. See, it's not a conspiracy between Frodo and Gandalf. Are you ready to spring our trap and steal Mad Baggins' fortune? Uh, what do you mean to say... Oh, wait, so wait... Wait, what happened to him there? Oh, I see. So the name of it is Evil Dwarf. Oh, he's one of the dwarves. Okay, after the feast, Bilbo and Frodo arose, all and waited, and waited with great anticipation to see what Bilbo would say. Bilbo and I would like to thank all of you for attending. Notice how Frodo gets all these lines. We cannot express our gratitude for how it was Frodo delivering the speech. Before we conclude the evening, my uncle has something he would like to say. Okay, so he's just going to hand it over to Bilbo. Finally. I am rather enjoying Bilbo's speech, are you not? Okay, so so Bilbo is okay, Bilbo's a queer character, but well spoken. Okay, so we're liking Bilbo's speech. And now he has an announcement. Again, now Frodo introduces his announcement here. That too is interesting. Okay. So we're again approving of Gandalf's Gandalf now, says the evil dwarf, and fireworks go off and smokes go up. So the disruption of the party is part of the master plan of the evil dwarf and Gandalf. No one will suspect that we've disposed of mad Baggins. Okay, now that we have Baggins all to ourselves, now we have Baggins all to ourselves. Isn't that right, Gandalf? Oh, boy, the Gandalf actor is not really playing his part here. Uh, and so our tale comes to an end. To this day, no hobbit is seen or heard from Mr. Baggins or the old wandering conjurer. 
Though some claim on cool, clear nights the sound of distant laughter and jingling coins can still be heard around the old party tree. Interesting. Okay. So. Excellent. So notice what we get here, right? So th- we have here a version of the Mad Baggins story, right? Several things that I find really interesting about this, because of course it's different from what we what we get in that that first paragraph of chapter two that we ended with, right? The story of Mad Baggins who disappeared and reappeared. On the one hand, first of all, there's no reappearance, right? What we get is the integration of the rumor that started by Otho and Lobelia. At least Frodo believes it started by Otho and Lobelia, right? Um, and. Uh, that there was this conspiracy to get rid of Bilbo and get a hold of his wealth. According to the legend told in the play here, the conspiracy was successful, and they disposed of him. They murdered uh, Bilbo. Remember, that was exactly the kind of... That's exactly the kind of gossip, the kind of scandal-mongering that Frodo and the gaffer both disapprove of, right? This, that, but, but notice the shift, right? Um, it's not Otho and Lobelia's attempt to spread that rumor and make that story stick apparently didn't work, right? It didn't stick to Frodo. Frodo is instead given a, well, a semi-heroic role in the story, right? He is presented there with Bilbo. In fact, he's the one who's primarily the host of the party. He's there with Bilbo, welcoming people in at the gates, which, of course, is unhistorical, right? That's not how it happened in Chapter 1. He is there giving the speech, most of the speech, right? Except he's kind of making time for Bilbo to give his bits as well. Um, And then... uh, you know, And again, he's sort of like the MC all the way through. So he's put in this really positive role. He's not part of the conspiracy. The conspiracy is instead foisted onto an evil dwarf, right? Um, we don't trust those outsiders who are clearly up to no good. Um, and the, he even had a mask, right? The evil dwarf. Um, so that's really fascinating how that story is shifted. Now, again, it's not, um, it's not the story of Mad Baggins we get in Chapter 2. There's no disappearing and reappearing, right? In fact... One wonders why he's called Mad Baggins at all in this depiction of the uh, uh, in this depiction of the of of the story, because of course he doesn't do the mad thing that Mad Baggins does in uh, uh, in the original version of the story. Uh, well, that is in the original legendary version of the story at the beginning of chapter two. Um, so that's that that that's really interesting. That's kind of cool, um, and I, I I'm 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 I'm. I think it's neat how they've done this version of the story, kind of thinking through... Because, of course, you can see, right, why Frodo would be put into the more, much more positive role, that um, much more positive than he was... Um, uh, um, uh, m- much more positive than he was in, uh, in, in, in the original story, where, again, the only, his only involvement was the rumor of his Im- uh, uh, implication in the conspiracy, right? Um, because, of course, it's a post-Lord of the Rings story, right? It's, this is the story after Frodo has been around, right? It's not a story that, uh, um, uh, that is... Um, all the real events have been forgotten. Like it's, it's, it's both 
more immediately after, it seems, more immediately after the Lord of the Rings, or... Okay, the time of the game is contemporary with the action of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so Frodo is still sort of generally respected, but he's not yet achieved real heroic status yet, right? He's not yet had... Frodo has not yet had his return to the Shire, served as as, uh, as substitute mayor and all that kind of thing. Um, so Frodo isn't operating kind of on that level with the... Uh, with the Shire as a whole. But um, he is... But he's still genuinely respected and the, the implications that he was in cahoots with Gandalf have gone off. Um, but of course, it's not chronologically at the same point that the Mad Baggins story in Chapter 2 is told because the real events have not been forgotten. In fact, the real events um, have... Uh, m- not all the real events have even happened yet of course, from this vantage point. Um, so instead we're just getting this, uh, this, uh, Hobbit Shakespeare, uh, and his, uh, his version of the Mad Baggins story. So it's in this like intermediate state, right? Between the real account of the story and, uh, and the legendary account that's going to be remembered many, many years, uh, later after all the real events have been forgotten. Um, so that's, that's, um, that's, that's cool. Anyway, um, yeah, Modesnutter says he, he's only mad because they killed him, apparently. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, Tiber is noting that all this talk of murder in a society that's supposed to have never have had one seems unusual. I agree. I agree. It is, it, it is something they talk about rather a lot if it's not on their radar screen at all, right? If nobody's ever done it. Um, I mean, in a sense, it makes it sort of more, um, um, more liable to to be um, uh, joked about. I guess easier to joke about it, right? If people are getting murdered all the time, you don't joke about it nearly as much, uh, maybe. But uh, but anyway, I think it's uh, it's interesting. What, what was his name? Bill Shuckborough? Was that uh, was that his Bill Bill Shakespeare? Right, Bill Shakespeare. Right. Uh, okay. Interesting. All right. Very good. Um, any other observations or thoughts? I, I, I thought that this play was really clever, the idea that they had the theater here. And of course, as you can see, people are throwing flower petals and, and, and rotten fruit. The idea is if the, uh, if the players who are called up to act perform their part correctly, you, 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 you throw the flower petals. And if they screw it up, you throw the fruit and you get, uh, you get deeds and rewards for the number of flower petals you throw and the number of of uh, rotten fruits that you throw. So, um, anyway, yes, you get the, uh, the title pedal pusher or fruit hucker, apparently, if you, uh, complete the, the respective deeds there. So, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, here's Tatdor and Waldo. I've heard the protagonist is a real icy personality. Oh, really? That's surprising. Why is that? Because her acting's always lukewarm. The throwing of rotten fruit sounds... <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, th- exactly. Ho, 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 they, they laugh. Um, and yes, the throwing of rotten fruit does sound very kind of Tudor era. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Statdor and Waldo do uh, make their, their comments all the way through. Um, all right. So anyway, we don't, uh, uh, they don't, uh, oh yeah. What does the G L O B E stand for? The, the, 
I did, did I miss that? It's clearly an acronym, right? Um, what's the... Uh, uh, I, I, but but that, did, did they say it and I missed it? It's got it's got to stand for something, right? Oh, right. Thank you. Uh, Luventhario is reminding me that um, the um, if if you get selected and you go backstage, you get to meet Ronald Dwale, uh, and Ronald Dwale. Is the uh, is the Hobbit stand-in for Tolkien himself, um, and uh, he's you know we see him writing stories and uh, it's the, okay let's see um, oh the G L O B E is the Green Lily Orators Bards and Entertainers okay all right Mr Shakespeare's uh, uh, Mr Shakespeare put together an acting company to amuse his customers and people liked it so much he's taken it on the road okay they have the Hobbit outside says that okay there we go all right cool. The Green Lily Orators, Bards, and Entertainers. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we should let people get to get to bed. We're about out of time here this evening. Um, thanks everybody for joining us tonight. Don't forget, next week we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish chapter one next week. Uh, reread very carefully the scene between Bilbo and Gandalf when Gandalf when they meet back in Bag End after the disappearance at the party, and Gandalf is trying to get him to give up the ring. We're gonna read that passage through uh, line by line and talk about it very carefully. Look at what we see going on there, what is Tolkien showing us as this sort of core action of, uh, of, of chapter one and the primary setup for the rest of the story. Um, you know, we've seen, in, in a sense, both of what we've done the last two weeks have been sort of ambiance and setup, right? Uh, and this is really the, the heart of the story. So, um, so I hope you will, uh, uh, you'll, you guys will be able to join me next week for session number three. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing you then. Thanks very much. Oh, yes. Thank you. Next week. Um, next week we are on Arkenstone. Yes. Arkenstone next week um, is the server we're, we're going to be on. Um, so I hope you, if those of you who want to join me in game can, can plan to, to join me on Arkenstone uh, next week. So, uh, so very good. Thanks, everybody, uh, for joining me. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.